records Smell the cover, read all the verses Tell me about your favorites on Vinyl and Vision Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of Vinyl and Vision. This is episode 44 with my very special guest, Dan Boucher. I was going to say the whole name. Dan Boucher, that's good. Um, so Dan is probably uh, best known for being a longtime member of the band Neptune, a uh, Boston-based band. Um, they have released a new record. Is that fair to say, new record? We'll, we get into the... We discuss why I'm in question of that right now uh, in the show, so uh, you'll hear all about it. But I purchased this from Dan because uh, he runs the record label Wrong Hole Archival Bureau and they released uh, this new recording of Neptune's Mother of Millions. So, uh, as a matter of fact, you'll probably be listening to a selection from this album right now called uh, Colborn Bells. Colburn? Colburn Bells. Colborn. Colborn? I don't know how to pronounce this. Um, it's a great album, so, and uh, it's a really cool cassette release. Um, we did discuss on the show, and so you will hear if you listen, uh, that they were considering putting releasing this on vinyl, but uh, considering the amount of artwork that they put into just the cassette alone, um, the idea of putting this on vinyl would probably be a little difficult and a little costly. So this is the way that they have gone about doing it. I know that they had some uh, limited edition type of releases of this on the Bandcamp site. But um, it's a very cool, very cool album. If you don't like tapes or if you don't have a cassette player, you can always buy the digital, which is also on the Ronhole Archival Bureau's Bandcamp page, which will be linked in the show notes. So uh, if you are interested, just go there, just click on that, and it'll take you to the shop where you can find other releases that uh, Wronghole has been doing, such as uh, this one by Infrastructure Rock, uh, Mute City. Here, this is so cool. I love this old font, right? Um, TK, and uh, Dan was actually kind enough to uh, gift me these cool cassettes, and, uh, and I think for the reason to show you what kind of work they do here. This is, um, these are really cool kind of uh, really elaborately packaged cassettes. Um, Dan is also in a band called uh, Golden Shores, which is this one, which is also super cool. Um, I believe all of these are available still currently at the um, Bandcamp page, so go check that out. Um, I have to say thank you to Dan. Just I have to say thank you to Dan for not only doing the show and talking with me about uh, the X and Tom Cora's Scrabbling at the Lock, but obviously all of these cassettes, which, uh, to be honest with you, I haven't been able to listen to all of them yet, but I'm getting through it. I have a lot of stuff to listen to, and, um, and also for these uh, vinyl releases from Neptune, um, I don't know if this is available anymore through the website. Um, I know that he put up a few very limited editions of these uh, on the last Bandcamp Friday, so please go check and look to see if they're there. If not, I'm sure you can still pick up the digital, um, but I just want to say thank you. Thank you, Dan. This is really, really very nice of you to, to send these to me, and I really appreciate it. 
Um, so aside from that, uh, let's get right into it because it's kind of a little lengthy one. We uh, did, did a lot of talking that night. And uh, yeah, I, I love the album. Uh, the X and Tom Cora's Scrabbling at the Lock. It's a pretty, pretty good one. Um, I'm definitely going to keep it in my wheelhouse and uh, refer back to it at some points. So uh, yeah, just please do all the things you do with the internet. Uh, like, share, subscribe, comment, subscribe, share, like, comment, share, rate, review. There's there's the last ones. Rate and review, please. And uh, yeah, enjoy the show. Thanks. So, um, but yeah, I would, I would recommend it. So you never uh, went on tour in South America then, huh? We, so Neptune had an offer to do five shows in Brazil. And hmm. we, uh, we really, really wanted to go. Uh, but between, so it was really hard with Neptune because, uh, you know, the instruments are all scrap metal. You know, it's all stuff that like, we, we can't just show up somewhere and like, you know, rent metal. Rent gear. Car. Yeah. So uh, the cost just it, it we would have ended up losing so much money, and I mean, our whole you know um, thing as a band was you know we never really cared. We would have done it just to do it, just you know to go mm-hmm. meet people. But it was it, we just couldn't we couldn't afford it. It was crazy right. expensive. So. Yeah, that sucks. Geez, yeah. so you you don't run into that same problem uh, traveling in Europe then? I mean, because I didn't realize that you, I didn't wasn't thinking about the handmade instruments and like how much they're like just basically like scrap metal. Right. We we didn't run into that. Um, my friend Jason, who is the guy who founded Neptune, uh, he is you know he's part scientist, part musician, and what he did before our first European tour was he. Um, figured out the exact dimensions of the luggage restrictions and then he built cases that fit that would you know that would be accepted that mm. you know the dimensions and then he built new instruments that would fit inside <laughs> those cases um so but a lot of times you know we got you know we got blown over a couple of times to do festivals or whatnot um so i think for the most part on European tours, we would break even. But yeah, so actually, touring Europe was was fairly easy for us, and we found this guy by the name of Heiss, and he had a like his his whole business. We actually found this guy through the X's sound man, Gert, mm. uh, and he actually booked the X's first tour. Uh, so he had his business was he had a bunch of printer vans. And he had a storage space where he had, you know, like numerous amplifiers, drum kits, everything. Mm-hmm. And he allowed us to leave a lot of our instruments there. And that made things a lot easier. So that's kind of how we ended up touring Europe so much. So, so n- nothing nothing similar like to, uh, to that in, uh, in, the, in South America yet? <laughs> no, no, not yet. I, uh, my bandmate, my current bandmate, I play in this band called Lay Feeling with... Uh, one of my really close friends, Tom, and he 
was playing in a band with this guy Juan Pablo and Juan Pablo lives in Bogota in Colombia and so Tom has already gone to Bogota and he was like we have to go there and record a record and I'm like yes let's mm. do that. so uh, that would be a little easier because we wouldn't have to bring so much stuff because his friend there is a musician and has mm. a do um right so you know a little bit of a pipe dream but you know it might mm. happen yeah cool um so tell me now because we, we started talking about neptune already uh i was just kind of curious i did a little bit of the research and and like i'm not i couldn't see exactly like when you joined the band i mean you weren't a founding member is that correct I was not a founding member, no. Um, so uh, Neptune, uh, it was really kind of an awesome story. Uh, I was a big fan of the band. I had, I had seen them once um, because I went to a show at the Middle East to see this band, Turkish Delight, who were mm. phenomenal Boston band, one of my favorites. And uh, their guitarist uh, was Neptune's drummer, Neptune's first drummer. And I knew of Neptune, like I had read about them and I'd read about the instruments and I was like, this sounds really cool. And I saw them and I was like, shit, this band is awesome. Like it really was a spectacle, you know, to see like the sculptural instruments and, um, you know, they're always really performative. So that, you know, that really drew me to them. And then, uh, you know, the pretty much most of the lineup kind of went off, the, most of the original lineup kind of went off to do other things. And then mm. a good friend of mine uh, named Jessica Ryland, I don't know if you're familiar with her stuff, but she's a synth builder and, um, you know, she's she's just, you know, kind of all around awesome person. Um, okay. She joined the band and I was really psyched. I was like, whoa, a friend of mine's in Neptune. How cool. And I really loved that lineup. And then there was another one after that. And then uh, a friend of mine by the name of John Manson, uh, who was in a really, really good band in Boston called the Grand Island called me uh, once and it was kind of a weird story um, my father was really ill and in the hospital and he was like hey look I know this is not a good time for you but um, we need a percussionist in Neptune and would you want to join and I was like fucking A man yes this is the best time ever like this is great mm -hmm. so it was weird when I you know when I joined I, I really kind of thought I was only going to do one show I was just going to be the fill-in percussionist um, and you know at the end of that one show I you know pretty much was like alright I, I, I want to be in this band yeah. So, um, so yeah so I guess actually I guess it, I guess really it was the fifth lineup um, so what, what year was that approximately 2000. Uh, my first okay. show was May 5th, 2000, which was Jason, who is the you know the founder of Neptune. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a uh, he was studying sculpture and performance art at Mass Art, and my first show with the band was his thesis show. Uh, so we played in this art gallery, and it was it was so much fun. We only had two rehearsals before. Uh, well, I only had two rehearsals with the band before playing mm -hmm. this. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know the songs, but we just went for it and it was kind of awesome. It was, you know, it was great. I kept almost falling over. I wasn't really used to standing up and playing. Yeah. I've been a drummer my whole life. And the gallery floor had, the, you know, the gallery had this like nicely buffed floor. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, I'd 
kind of move around a lot and uh like i almost i almost fell over so many different times and uh it was just fun it was like it it really felt like being on a roller coaster it was just like you know up and down and up and down and like push and pull and fun so then i ended up uh in the band for 10 years after Hmm. that and um and yeah and then you know something something really similar to a band like the x um and something like what 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 i found really appealing about neptune was it was like always evolutionary there was Hmm. all something new and like you know I, i new membership and you know always like kind of like you know just challenging themselves like new ideas and, and whatnot and that that really appealed to me so um after i left the band um i went for, for like the new lineup uh i flew out from arizona i was living in arizona i flew out to actually just show you know because it kind of you know it, it meant a lot to me to to be there um mm-hmm. and i know like a lot of people don't don't often you know they, they like people talk about band drama and all this stuff but um you know those guys are like you know i love them like my brothers right oh that's cool yeah, yeah i i, I kind of i understand what that can be like i mean I'm, and i'm it's nice to hear that you know you don't have any kind of like hard feelings or anything when you know because the, you're not part of the band anymore uh when, when did they break up exactly well or they they're not officially broken up no like they never did and yeah Band will never cease to exist um, so long as Jason is around. And, you know, I, I never, in my mind, I never actually quit the band. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I just uh, sort of, you know, the, we just released a new record, which we recorded in 2009. Um, and we worked on slowly over the years, which is, it's my favorite record I've ever been a part of. I, I really love it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, super brutal and we were all in really we were all in really rough spots in our lives two of us were going through some really you know heavy transitions like breakups and Mm -hmm. so i i didn't you know i needed to get out of boston i hated living in boston after a while and you know it was too expensive i couldn't afford it um so i you know the hardest thing about leaving it wasn't even like you know i i I love my siblings i love my family the Mm -hmm. hardest about that decision was leaving neptune Hmm. and you know because we're such good friends they were you know they were you know awesome about it they were like you know of course um we think you need to do this it's a good thing and you know so now we've kind of you know we're again talking about you know doing stuff um remotely uh the the thing that's really changed about the band is jason now lives in colorado mark lives in uh north carolina kevin is up in boston so um i don't know if you know kevin micah he's he's kind of always been he's always been sort of like a a a member of the band um even like you know predating my involvement in the band uh Mm -hmm really awesome project called animal hospital which is definitely worth checking out okay. uh, so we you know we, we keep talking about doing stuff and before the pandemic actually hit kevin and i were getting together and doing um dual drum practices to try to like you know write some new neptune material so mm-hmm. 
yeah, Neptune is like it's you know it's a hard thing to uh, it's a hard thing to kill. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess with that that ability to have a revolving door or like a kind of consistent cast of characters that you can kind of draw from, and it's like you don't there's no set members necessarily per se. Um, minus Jason, you were saying um, that could probably that, yeah, I mean, it leads to kind of uh, uh, an eternal eternal life, I guess. Yeah. All right. So you joined in about two thousand. See, because like the the history, the the research that I was doing, I was just like the history just seemed a little skewed. So I figured I, I might as well just kind of get it straight from you, and like maybe that'll kind of like straighten it out for me, help me understand it a little bit better. Um, so it seems that according to the discography, uh, you have probably done. You've performed on most every recording, minus some of the early like singles and EPs and stuff. Does that Almost. sound right? Uh, not necessarily. No. Um, I think I, I'm also I, I I kind of call myself a, a Neptune historian <laughs> because uh, it's you know it's it's not every day that you get to join a band that you were a fan of. You know, mm. like once I did join the band, um, I started making a website. And I started doing, uh, like, you know, a lot of archival stuff. Like, I made a show archive and, and all of this stuff. So hmm. the thing is, like, yeah, I guess there was only one. No, there were three Neptune releases before I joined. So two seven inches and a CD. So in my 10 years of being in the band, I think we did 20 releases. I guess I played on most of the records. Hmm. Uh, but I, I was looking at some of the credits that you had done, and so you have done more than just the percussion. So you're kind of like a multi-instrumental multi-instrumentalist. You've done like what some some uh, melodica and some other kind of like weird percussion elements, stuff like that. In Neptune, um, in Neptune, I started off playing percussion. Jason welded, um, but it was more you know after I left Neptune, um, I actually took a break from music for about eight years. Uh, and started playing clarinet and guitar a lot. So, you know, mm. now in the bands that I play, I do a lot more like, you know, guitar, clarinet, melodica. Um, mm. One of my good friends here, Alec Redfern, who was on the show before. Um, yes. We, we've we been playing together. And, uh, it's, say You Love Satan? What's that? Say You Love Satan, right? Yeah, Say You Love Satan with our friend right. Hannah, who's, who's doing vocal. Mm. Uh, but Alec and I are doing, uh, we're actually recording uh, in about a week and a half at Machines with Magnets. We're doing, we're just going to go in and improv a bunch of stuff. But it's funny in the world of modular synthesis, <laughs> like I, I'll ask Alec how to do stuff and he'll tell me and I'm like, okay, I need definitions for almost every word you just said. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, you need a schematic is what you need. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So it's 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 a huge learning curve, but it's it's a lot of fun. So yeah, yeah, that's that. I I can't stand that stuff. I mean, like like I love those things, but I have a hard enough time with like just a regular keyboard and how many keys are in front of me. Like that's already that's already plenty. You know, right. like if you start putting in all these like patch cords and cables and stuff, like no, God knows how many knobs for how many different types of effects. Like it's yeah. it's really daunting. I feel. It, it is really daunting and you know for me i've i've never had a music lesson in my life mm. uh so uh you know i'm like alec what note are you playing and he'll be like uh d and i'm like i don't even know what that is show me on the keyboard where it is 
so when we were rehearsing, when we were writing the Say You Love Satan stuff, he, you know, we were, we'd like set up across from each other and I was watching his fingers, you know, to like kind of play along. But I like, it was like the mirror effect. I'm like playing in the wrong direction that I should. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so I have been learning a lot, but still it's just like, I don't know. You need like a, you need, you need some sort of degree to figure that shit out. It's crazy. Yeah. Either that or just like a, like an obscene, like an obsessive, like compulsive, like draw to it where you just are, you just playing with it every day for God knows how long and just till you figure it out. Cause that's what like, cause it's not just hitting one key. You can't just hit one key and expect, okay, that's the note. Because as soon as you, you like start affecting all of the other, like, you know, modulations, now that one note isn't just ding, it's like all this other weird stuff. And how do you like know how to manipulate it to repeat that exact same like frequency and like, yeah, it's, it's maddening. I, I don't know. I can't, I can't handle it. <laughs> it's awfully exciting, but it is maddening. You know, I'm sure. No, I'm sure it is exciting. Cause like when you get it together and starts, you know, coming together and working out, I'm sure it's just like anything else, you know, but, uh, yeah, the, the process in which to get there seems a little, a little maddening. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it definitely is. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, now say you love Satan, that's going to be the first recording that you guys do. I think so. Uh, cause we, you haven't put anything out for say you love Satan yet. Yeah. No, we, that, that band was sort of born, um, I guess like out of the pandemic really, uh, hmm. It's funny, you know, Alec and I had, you know, Neptune and, you know, both the Eyesores and Barnacled, um, which are, you know, Alec's bands. We'd played together a bunch over the years and um, but we never really knew each other. And a, a really good friend of ours, mutual friend of ours, James Quigley, uh, he would always tell me he would be like, you know, oh, you would love my friend Alec. You guys like you guys would hit it off. So. James actually stayed here a couple of uh, a couple of years ago for you know he was here for the holidays, and he brought Alec over and of course Alec and I just like start talking about music and records and like rah, 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 and it was like instantly mm -hmm. like you know like best buds. Yeah. So uh, we had talked a bunch about you know playing together, and um, I had I like I, I really this is going to sound really weird. But when Moog put out the grandmother, the which is the synthesizer that I bought, I was really, really attracted to the color pattern. <laughs> like I thought the design of it was really cool. And I was like, I'm gonna get one. Maybe Alec can like show me how to, you know, how to how to use it. Uh -huh. and from there, like, you know, he'd come over and we just like started doing stuff and uh so we, you know, we have a friend named Hana who, uh, she was in a band called Freak Bag. I don't uh -huh. know if you've ever heard of them, but they were, they were yeah. awesome. So Hana um, was like, was doing vocals and, you know, it, it was weird, like being in the pandemic, you know, all of us were pretty sheltered and like not really leaving our house. So we're like, you know, we could get together in the garage and, um, you know, work some stuff out. So Alec and I, uh, we spent a lot of time like, you know, fleshing out music and we're both sort of, uh, I don't know, we, we love um, just like, you know, jamming, being like old goofballs, you know, mm -hmm. so we 
you know, we were able to like write a couple songs and our friend Dan Shea, who does this thing out of Boston called Boston Hassle, um, invited us to do a live stream, which uh, was really awesome because that sort of was a good catalyst for us to actually flesh stuff out and, and get stuff together. Um, mm. You know, but the thing that was, you know, I, I think the I think the live stream was in September and we were rehearsing in my garage and then, you know, the garage isn't heated. So, oh, yeah. you know, winter we're, was just like, we're like, no, I'm not going to freeze my ass off. We've kind of, um, you know, it's it's kind of been on hold for a little bit. Um, but Alec and I, when we do record, we're going to we're going to do the basic tracks of Say You Love Satan. And then we're starting a, a new band, which we have we have a name, but mm -hmm. we don't have any music. So <laughs> our name is Liminal Light. So I think what we're going to do, um, we're just going to go and do a bunch of improv stuff and then like weave it together and maybe make like an EP or a record out of it. So uh -huh. kind of like doing double band duty. Um, yeah. Crazy. Well, you like to keep busy, it seems. I mean, obviously, between all the projects and, uh, and the label that you run, and obviously that probably keeps you pretty busy, too. It, it really does. Um, and the the label kind of saved me in the pandemic in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, anything musical, I love. Like, talking about music, um, you know. So the label has been great because I can do a lot of stuff like you know i like i love doing graphic design i love interacting with people so i think in t 2020 i only had i had plans to do four or five releases and it ended up being 17. Oof, it, wow. it, yeah it, it was it was awesome um so you know it's really fun like it, in a lot of ways doing the label is really fun because you know you're like well, I could put out these records and make art and like not really have to do anything. Like I don't mm. have music. So, um, yeah. but yeah, it's good. It, 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 like it, it was a good way to keep me connected with a lot of friends. Um, and you know, it's definitely, it, it's great because, you know, uh, like I, I, I kind of draw inspiration from, from everything, from everywhere. And, you know, seeing like different friends doing stuff i'm like this is awesome let's make a record let's you know mm. let's put something out so um so yeah it, it it's it really snowballed last year and even even the previous year um so yeah it was definitely it was definitely good for my mental health during yeah, lockdown. that's um, great so uh i have to ask because i mean you know you're talking on a show right now called vinyl and vision and i and i supposedly emphasize on vinyl which i haven't been doing because of the pandemic because with the uh with these you know virtual calls instead of being in person here i've lost the vinyl element where we'd bring in a record and actually play it right. and show it off um but uh but your label deals primarily with cassettes yes um and i mean there's a couple reasons for that uh you know i i love vinyl i'm a vinyl purist but vinyl production is it's really costly it's not yeah. something like i mean i couldn't i couldn't put out 17 pieces of vinyl in a year right and it's timely so, too yeah and the reason when the whole the reason the label started was um in 2005 when um neptune became a three-piece we just really started experimenting and recording stuff and 
uh, all three of us started different labels. Hmm. So um, mine at the time was called Wrong Hole, which is, you know, a bit crass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that based on a band that you had been part of? It actually is. It's a weird yeah. story. Um, it's yeah, it is a bit crass and weird. So I I changed it to the wrong W H O L E. Um, so that's how Wrong Hole Archival Bureau um, came to be. I just you know when Neptune was doing cassettes, I just needed a name, and I kind of mm. threw that one out, and it stuck. And you know that's that's where that came from but to to kind of get back to the cassettes uh you know i myself is is like you know a music lover and like a huge music consumer i always love the physical product you know right so cassettes are you know they're they're not that expensive to manufacture you can make them look awesome they come with a digital download so, you know, for people who love physical format, you know, you still can have something tangible, um, hmm. you know, and then, I mean, a lot of like, sadly, I don't get a ton of time to like sit in my living room and listen to records. You know, a lot of times I listen to music, like if I'm working or, you know, like even if I'm in my garage, like doing art stuff, like I'll, I listen to it on my little Bluetooth speaker or whatever it is. Right. Uh, so, you know, that that's kind of why that's why I focus mainly on cassettes. It's it's more, you know, because really vinyl is like is is cost prohibitive. Um hmm. but I don't know. I kind of I kind of love doing cassettes. I think they're I think they're pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely unique. It's definitely kind of like a, a like a niche market, I think. I mean, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, vinyl is expensive. It's expensive and it's time-consuming to do. Like you have to have a lot of like prep time ahead of time to like you know like just uh account for it correctly like you know shipping wise like you know if you're doing pre-sales you know when it's coming in and like it can be anywhere from two to four to five months depending on where you're going i guess so um yeah no i I hear you man i mean it's fine but so quality wise how do you feel about the difference between the the cassette and, and vinyl i mean nothing sounds like Nothing sounds as good as vinyl. Yeah. Uh, I work with a duplication company called Cryptic Carousel, and uh, I believe they're in upstate New York. So uh, their duplication is great. Like the the sound is is really good. I mean, you obviously get tape hiss, which you know is I guess sort of akin to uh, you know vinyl pop. Yeah, vinyl crackle. Yeah, but um, you know I like. I'm really happy and all like every artist record I put out once they like listen to the actual set um, are really happy with it. And, you know, I was surprised I, I did a, um, I did a, I did a, I'm I'm not going to name who it was, but I did a record for a friend who is extremely picky about stuff, which I understand. I am too. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the cassette came back and they were like, wow, I can't believe it sounds this good. And I was like, oh, cool. That's that's great. That's good to hear, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, I, I, I really wish I could do more vinyl. And, mm. 
when Neptune, you know, we'd been talking a lot over the past year um, about the the record we just released, which is called Mother of Millions. Right. And um, we were going to do it on vinyl. We were going to do double vinyl. And I think the base cost of just uh, pressing the records was somewhere around $4,000. Uh, and then, I mean, because we're, you know, we're, we all love like, artwork and inserts and you know it would have been it would have ended up being so much money we were gonna do it but then the pandemic happened and we were like well even if we could play shows to promote this record you know like it's still you know it, it's gonna be a long it's gonna be a long time before we could actually like get out there and and do anything so mm. we ended up just like doing cassette maybe someday it'll come out on on vinyl I, mm. I, I love that but yeah 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 I mean it's it's uh, kind of uh, out of necessity you know I mean I'm glad that you did it um, obviously it took long enough for you guys to, to manufacture in the first place I mean you said you recorded it in 2009 right yeah that was um, overall it, it, it's really weird this is one of my favorite um, records I've ever done or been a part of um, and like I said earlier it was born out of a time that we were like we were all like fucked up like hmm. you know, not like you know drugs or <laughs> anything we were just like emotionally all emotional messes you know yeah. um and you know we made this record and we wrote it and like as we like when we wrote this record we completely changed all of our setups so it would force us to play differently, which is kind of what we would do for every record anyways. Um, so we recorded it in 2009 with Kevin Micah. Um, and I think we did, initially it was a two day session and we wanted, we wanted the record to sound brutal. Like the, the music was just brutal. Like there were, um, you know, there's one song where, where Mark Pearson, uh, who was, you know, playing baritone guitar and synthesizer and whatever on the record there's one song where he was like i dare anyone to try to find a single note in this song <laughs> um so we because of that mark had an idea that he wanted all the room mics to be run through tube amps which we did uh yeah. and it really like it was really just like the most blown out crazy sounding shit uh and then about you know i think six months after we recorded the record i moved to arizona for two years um and then my husband and i moved back uh we came back to rhode island and so i went up and i started like i did i think in you know 2012 went up and did like you know some percussion overdubs and some vocals and then 2013 did some more and then you know, we sat on it for a while and then uh, both Jason and Mark came to Providence and we spent two days at Machines with Magnets and mixed it. And, you know, our friend Seth Manchester, who's, you know, the kind of like the head en engineer over there, um, was kind of awesome because, you know, we're always like, we, you know, no, we want it to sound that way. We want it to sound that that shitty but he really like doctored the sound um he's huh. so good at what he does yeah. before any of us were done saying like what we wanted it was sounding that way 
So, um, so that was a really big, like that, that was, that, that was great doing that. I think we, we also did some like, you know, like vocal overdubs and whatnot. And then during like pretty much the entire pandemic year, uh, we have a friend, a good friend named Scott Craggs, who is a mastering engineer and he runs this place called old colony mastering. And he was based out of Boston, but, um, he moved to North Situate, Rhode Island, and uh, bought a property that had a like a standalone building, which he made into a mastering studio. Nice. So I think last year we did six or seven mastering passes where we were just asking Scott, you know, do the weirdest shit you can think of. Or like, we want to do this. Can you try this? And we just, we, we actually like, tried so much stuff we did the same thing you know like seth actually when we mixed it uh the last song is this like you know like nine and a half minute kraut rock kraut rock song and mm -hmm. we asked seth we were like can you like dub it out just make do so and he like the stuff that he did on it is amazing so it's cool that like you know as as like the like the nucleus of the band the three piece we made this record but we had a lot of input from other people to like really sculpt the sound. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of the reason why I, I feel like it's my, it's my favorite record I've ever been a part of is, you know, being a musician playing in bands that, you know, most people don't, don't like, <laughs> or like, you know, it's, it's not very like marketable music. Right. You know, we're always like, like the biggest hindrance is money. So we would go into a studio and maybe track for a day and then mix for like two days or something. So this one, we actually took our time, uh, you know, 11 and a half years to make it sound as like fucked up as it does. Right. So, um, so overall, it was it was a great experience. And, you know, yeah, I, I'm really, really happy with the way that came out. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm gonna have to listen back to it now that you've kind of like informed me a little bit more of the background and kind of the, the, what went into the <clears throat> like the mixing and the mastering of it, especially. So yeah. uh, I'm gonna listen to it with like some fresh ears now. Yeah, you guys get a lot of crazy sounds. I mean, like I've been listening to a number of the records uh, over the past few weeks. And uh, yeah, a lot of the times I can't even tell what instrument is what I mean, I guess obviously, this might have a lot to do with the fact that um, that you guys use like man-made handmade instruments so yeah. you know and even the guitars what are what are i imagine to be guitars i was like okay well these sound a little different like the percussion sounds a little different i mean they have similarities to obviously like your generic run-of-the-mill like basses and guitars and stuff but um but definitely you know kept me on my toes as far as just like what am i hearing exactly like what's going on here yeah i like hearing that 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 makes me happy um hmm. yeah when when we became a three-piece uh Actually, no, I guess maybe uh, slightly before uh, Jason and Mark both got really into electronics and building electronics. And um, they so Jason made what we called an oscillator organ it had a, um, wooden keys. I think it had maybe like between like nine and 11 wooden keys and it would trigger different, you know, oscillator tones. And then Mark made this really awesome. I don't even know what you would call it, but it was all light switches so like you know like light switches that you would get at home depot or whatever and um he just like you know made this synth out of like you know light switches it was awesome um wow. so so yeah it, like that was always fun i i really love you know experimenting with 
different sounds and uh it got really exciting for me because i mean i i actually i started playing drums when i was three years old um three three when i was three years old yeah i lucked out because i have um i have a bunch of i'm the youngest of five kids and you know i was born in 1974 and my two older sisters are 13 and 14 years older than me um my sister like just decided one year at christmas to get me a drum set like one of those little kitty drum sets mm -hmm. uh, and that was uh that was just after i turned three because my birthday is December. And ever since then, I never let go of it. You started touching on stuff that I was going to ask you about anyway. Like, um, uh, yeah. your parents didn't really have much of an influence on you, right? No, they did, actually. Okay. Uh, my, so, my whole family is somewhat artistic. Uh, my dad was really into, I wasn't very close with my dad. He was kind of a prick. Um, but he was really into classical music. Um, but he loved shitty classical music. Like he loved like Ravel's Bolero and, um, but some really cool stuff. And as a kid, I hated it. My brother and I like just hated it. And mm -hmm. so one day we noticed that he had a Simon and Garfunkel cassette and, uh, we were like, Oh God, can we, can we please not listen to Bolero and play this cassette? And uh, like Simon and Garfunkel, I was like, oh, this is so much cooler. Like, I like this, you know? And my mom was a big music fan. Her favorite band was The Platters. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them. They were like 50s uh, yeah. vocal band. They're they're great. I still love that band. Hmm. Um, I can't listen to them anymore because since my mom passed away, as soon as I hear them, I, I, like, I just start crying. Um, but hmm. both of my parents were definitely musical people. Um, I have three sisters, but they're, they're all artists. They're all like painters, sculptors, whatever. So I, for some reason, got the music bug. I don't know, like, I don't know how. Uh, I think it might've been on solid gold or, or something. There was um, a performance, Blondie was doing a performance. And I remember like they like remember the performance because it was a black backdrop. They were all wearing black. And every time they would focus on Chris Stein, the drummer, I just remember thinking like, that is what I want to do. I want to be that guy. Like I want mm. to be in this situation. Yeah. Uh, so that was, that was probably like my most formative musical memory. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, weird. But you were already playing drums at this point, weren't you? I mean, because you were playing since you were three. I was, but I mean, you know, I got my first drum kit when I was three. I was really interested in music, but, you know, at three years old, I wasn't studying like, oh, I'm going to learn this or like learn this. You know, I never really took it serious. It was something that I always thought was really cool and I always wanted to do, but mm -hmm. I never took it, you know, seriously until um, I discovered pot and... <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. uh, was able to buy my first drum kit so um, but it you know music was always a really big part of my life and you know i know a lot of people like say this and i don't want to sound cliche but uh you know a lot of my young life was kind of traumatic like i said my dad was sort of a prick mm. and um music was just a great escape and my sisters had a turntable and records and i would just go and sit in their room and listen to records endlessly you know and that was mm -hmm. my 
you know, that, that sort of, that was like my savior of, of, you know, my young life. So, um, I know a lot of people have had, like, I've talked to a lot of people and they've had the same, you know, experience that like something like, you know, music or art or whatever kind of, you know, really set them on a path that kind of, you know, saved their life in, in some sort of way. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it seems like, uh, so you were saying that about watching that Blondie performance, I mean, um, that might have been the, the the trigger that kind of put it in your mind that you were like, oh, you can actually do music as like a living. It's not just something you just do for fun. It's like I could actually do that, and that could be what I do. Yeah, you know, that, yeah. that's yeah. That that sounds interesting because because uh, obviously you already had the the bug that you thought it was cool. Yeah, and as a kid, I remember um, I used to tell people they were like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, a rock star. <laughs> and my mom and my sister thought that was hilarious, and. Yeah of funny because you know i in my later life or even in my early teens really started to abhor the idea of rock stars and, and rock right. stardom but as a kid i was like yes i want to be chris mm. stein i want to like play drums and look really cool and you know like obviously like as a young gay kid seeing something like you know as androgynous as prince you know, I was like, oh, you know, not like it's it sort of like blurred lines a little bit. I'm like, not everybody has to be like, you know, this like, you know, modelesque or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, that was that was kind of kind of huge. So, yeah, I think um, his it was his attitude more than anything that would that like commanded his like sexuality. Right. You know, it was just like that 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 boisterous, like kind of no fucks given. Like, right attitude that he just could just stand in like he wouldn't even have to do anything he just has just has this that that you know that stature of just being like i'm hot as fuck and i know it and that just does that just makes you that much more desirable there there is a there's a video um <clears throat> one of my favorite print songs is i want to be your lover right mm -hmm. it's on his second record and he does an early video where he is wearing a you scoop like leopard print I don't know, whatever, like um, tank top, I guess. And he has these giant hoop earrings and this feathered hair. And I was just like, how does that guy make that look so fucking cool? Like that guy is just the epitome of cool. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I was, uh, was going to start to ask you about uh, the record that you chose for tonight. So we, we were able to narrow it down together. Which was which was fun. You, you obviously have so many so many influences. I understand that you know it's it's hard to do. So uh, and I'm happy to, to to kind of try to narrow it down and try to figure that out together. And uh, so ultimately, we uh, you just you chose uh, the X and Tom Cora's "Scrabbling at the Lock." Scrabbling at the Lock. Yes. Um, yeah. It was. I I do have to say that. Um, well, I do want to say thank you for having me on because um, this is great. I love this. I love your program. And uh, sure, man. Thank you for doing it. Yeah, of course. And it's always fun to, you know, talk about music. But I have to say that trying to pick a favorite record was one of the hardest things I've done in a long time. So I thought like, you know, we, we you and I had like kind of like discussed a few things like through text. And then, um, you know, one of my best friends, Mark, who is, uh, you know, a member of Neptune, 
you know, he and I, we have a lot of similar music tastes. And so I actually texted him and I'm like, Mark, uh, uh, what record would you choose? (laughs) What's my favorite record? And he was like, how did you not choose ministry? And Uh. both like loved, you know, like, like ministry. Um, and then after you and I talked, like, I was just like really thinking of all of, all of the records that sort of, you know, like caused a very, like a, a big left turn in my life. Hmm. And, um, yeah. So I ended up choosing uh, the X and Tom Cora's Scrabbling at the Lock because that is, in my opinion, it's one of the best records ever made, but that really was a huge turning point, not only musically, but um, in terms of like, you know, like so many different things. I love their, their DIY aesthetic. Uh, mm-hmm. They also like, I mean, you know, they're, they're a Dutch band and um, they were also, you know, at, at, at the time that I discovered them, you know, I, I didn't care about politics and they're very political. And I started mm-hmm. learning more about American politics through a band from the Netherlands I did like growing up in the United States. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. I see. So uh, what was your uh, first experience like with, um, well, I'm going to say with the X, because I assume that you, you know, were introduced to the X before you found this album or maybe even before it came out. Right. Um, I can pinpoint the exact moment where uh-huh. I heard about the X and I was on a swing set in a park up from uh, like a block up from my mom's old house and uh somebody i mentioned earlier is my good friend david waterhouse and he he was he was just saying that like uh you know you got to check out this band the x Hmm. and so the first record i actually heard of theirs was called joggers and smoggers which came out it was the record that came out before scrabbling at the lock Mm -hmm. um and when I heard it, I was, you know, like I really loved industrial music. I loved, you know, Ministry and Front 242. And I was always looking for sort of the most abrasive and, uh, you know, I guess maybe not necessarily discordant. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, I guess maybe like stuff that was really like gnarly and harsh. And I heard yeah. the X and. Joggers and Smoggers is, you know, it's it's a double record. I think there's like 34 or 35 songs on it. They had all these guests. And to me, it was a complete revelation because it was so crazy sounding to me, but it wasn't like, it wasn't all distorted guitars. It was, right. you know, it was just, it was truly weird. It was the weirdest stuff I'd heard at the time. Yeah. Uh, and you're how old at this time? 15? Uh, I'm trying to do the math in my head. So, Because that came out in 89, I think. And so... I met David in 1993. So oh, okay. Because we were, we were in a band with his girlfriend at the time before we started Little Sexer. And that was 93, maybe early 94. Um, so, Scrabbling at the Lock actually came out in 1993. Um, no, but 91. I, no, 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 yeah, yeah. That came out in '91. The other one they did with Tom Cora came out in 1993. Yes. So, but I don't, I don't think I heard "Scrabbling at the Lock" until later. Yeah, until like a little bit later. Okay. But they like, um, 
every record sounded like the X, but every record was also somewhat of a major shift and a major turn. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my favorite records of theirs is this record called Oral Gorilla. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, you know, that record is, they had this woman, Nicolette, playing uh, guitar, and it is one of the noisiest records they did. I've listened to it. Yeah. When, you, when you suggested it, I was just like, well, let me listen to the X. So I listened to actually that one, Joggers and Smoggers, and uh, History is What's Happening. Oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did exactly what you probably did. I kind of was just like, okay, well, here's the band. Here's the, the, the check, like the, 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 here's the point that I'm starting in. Let me go back. Let me hear like where they came from, like where they started out as. And, uh, you know, just kind of kind of hear the progression, kind of get a feel for what they were doing, what they sounded like before joining up with Tom Cora and, and recording these two, these two other records. Yeah. And, um, the, so when I finally got, um, scrabbling at the lock, I mean, the, the first song on its state of shock is, you know, it starts off with this really rhythmic, these two like rhythmic guitar parts and, mm. you know, the cello comes in and then it just like goes into this part where they just like start ripping. And I remember mm. listening, when I heard that for the first time, I was just like, holy shit, this is, this is what I hope I can achieve someday. Like doing mm-hmm. music, like, this is incredible. It was cool to me at the time to like, you know, to, to, to have like non-traditional instruments in like some, some sort of like more traditional rock settings. Right. You know, you got this like scrapey, very like propulsive, uh, percussive band. And then, you know, Tom Cora playing cello, which added this insane sort of like melody to the band. Hmm. The other reason that Scrabbling at the Lock was huge to me is because Andy Moore, who was the guitarist of Dogface Hermans, that was his first, that was the first record he did with the X. Yes, right. He, like a permanent member um so he also brought like a different sort of melodicism to the band uh mm-hmm. but scrabbling at the lock was you know it, it just it really it, it changed everything about how i thought about music from my discovery of the x it was sort of like you know it was sort of like a like a tree blooming like i just started to listen and find out like all these other other bands because of it well, you know in the 90s i didn't really have a turntable i bought um i bought this this is the original copy of scrabbling at the lock oh, which we got in like 93 94 it was probably 94 okay it, yeah um so so yeah i mean like i've just been a I, i've been a you know crazy collector of, of their stuff you know ever since ever since yeah I, well, um, so, you know, I asked you, uh, I help you were helping me out a lot with this because I was telling you how this seems to be a very enigmatic record and, and band. I mean, at this record specifically, I mean, the X, okay, you can kind of learn a lot about them, but this record kind of has like gone, kind of gone under the radar, I think, as far as their catalog is concerned. Like, um, they're just like, like, I couldn't even find lyrics. Like if you like, cause I listen to everything digitally on, uh, through iTunes music and, usually every every major release will have the option to just kind of like hit the lyrics with it so as you're playing the music you can just kind of read along with the with the words and those aren't on there yeah it, it's not on Bandcamp. 
like that like the only thing i could think of was just like okay well maybe a pressing of the record like maybe an actual copy of the record has the lyrics with it because it's not on their website like there's no like uh the singer uh g what is it gw sock is that how you pronounce his name gw sock gw sock Um, his his name is actually yotes yos clay right but that's the other thing is like you know he's an incredible lyricist and when you said that you were like you know, I, I'm having a hard time finding lyrics. So I did the same thing. I did a search and I found there were only three songs from Scrabbling at the Lock that I could find lyrics, lyrics for. But yeah. upon reading them, they were incorrect. Oh, yeah. So um, so what I sent to you, I actually <laughs> I, I made some corrections on. And then I actually I just took pictures of the the record. Of the sleep, Mr. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Yeah. Reissued Scrabbling at the Lock uh, about like maybe six or seven years ago or something. Yeah, so, I see that you got the copy from 2009. Oh, okay. So because it, it says it was remastered by Colin and Andy at OT301 in January 2009. Right. So I'm assuming it was reissued somewhere around that time. Yeah. I just gotta I just gotta say this real fast. What is up with them? Uh, you know, uh, recording with Chumbawamba. Um. <laughs> so. You know, admittedly, I've never been a fan of Chumbawamba. They were one of the bands that I checked out. Um, but their their earlier stuff is wildly different from mm. what... Um, than Tub Thumping. Yeah, Tub Thumping. <laughs> oh, God. oh, God. That song makes me cringe. I know. And it probably makes them cringe, too. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those weird things where, like, you don't think about it. Like, you know, you get the you get the, the mainstream hit. You hear this song all over the radio. It's for, for some, it's just being bashed into your head from all angles. And you're like, who the fuck is that band? I hate I hate that band. Right. And then you're like, if you want to take the time, you can actually research them and be like, oh, they were actually a band long before this song ever came out. Yeah. And doing something completely different than this, you know, this weird mainstream bullshit music. Right. You know, so, yeah. So when when I discovered the X, um, it was you know, I mean it was like the dawn of the internet, but it was really before I could go on and plug in like the X. What can I find out about them? Right. But they were really great. Um, one one thing that was really like huge to me was they had um, they had a like a mail order you could get stuff from, and they would mm. you know they would always like they either you know like they would distro other bands so. Chumbawamba was one of them and I was like oh I'm going to check them out so I ordered a Chumbawamba CD and I don't know what happened to it I didn't listen to it twice but it was it was more like like folk music you know hmm. um, but one thing about the X particularly that was really great to me was you know one of the first times I had sent them like a check for a bunch of CDs I got a letter back from Yos, from the lead singer of the X, and hmm. to me, like, huge. I was like, "Holy shit! No way!" Ah, and uh, I still have it somewhere. It's like somewhere in a box. But yeah. you know, the the thing that really, another thing I really loved about them was like the human element. You know, they were like, you know, they were approachable, and they all seemed so incredibly smart and you know talented and whatnot. So. Um, hmm. But yeah, it it is funny that like you know that Chumbawamba ended up becoming like this international pop band. <laughs> right, but only for one song. There's just the one hit wonder. That's... Only for one 
one song. They did make another record after that, another pop record after that, but it didn't. It, it kind of went nowhere. Um, never, never heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But, well. Well, let's get into this record, because you've already mentioned a little bit about how your uh, initial experience listening to to State of Shock was like, so um, let's go ahead and play a little bit of that. Yeah, that that song. I remember listening to it. Um, I like. I love the way the guitars are recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sound really great, and you know, again, like, so from from all the stuff that I had heard from the X previously, you know, there was like a lot of their stuff is 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 very rhythmic, and um, you know, there's melody, of course, but like mm-hmm. the. The melody that Tom Cora brought, like those those cello lines, are so cool. And Andy also, like you know, they do some cool interplay throughout the record. But that song, I remember the first time listening to it, and it's like you know, dun 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 But when it really kicks in, I was just like, I was like, fuck, this is amazing. <laughs> and that's yeah. from end to end is is just incredible. And you know. Mm. So Kat from the X, Katharina Bornfield, who also goes by the name Katrin sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, she was a massive influence on me on my drumming. Um, mm-hmm. I cannot, it like I I can't claim that I can play as well as her, but mm-hmm. she really like I loved her. You know, like she didn't always do like, you know, hi-hat four, four beats. She was like, you know, she like, she definitely did like a lot of like African sort of inspired rolling percussion and wood blocks and all of this stuff. And like, I really love, um, I love that. The, so that song state of shock, I just love the, you know, it's super, it's super simple, but throughout throughout that track there's just like there's so much that happens and yeah um the lyrics i love the lyrics yosa's lyrics are are amazing on that track yeah there's uh, a couple of things about this song that that i have to i have to mention first of all um i was listening to this again today and i was realizing that there's a lot of music on this album yeah like i think this this album is about it's just shy of an hours and play an hour an hour an hour in playtime but there is so much music and there's so few words, you know, because uh, yeah. like even the intro that we just listened to, we listened to about, you know, a little more than 30 seconds worth of, uh, of the intro from the beginning into that part where the guitars really kind of come in and like it just starts really getting intense and none of the words came in yet. Right. Um, so but from what I do gather of the lyrics, it just seems that this song in particular I love his play of words, especially by the last verse. It's kind of like just throwing in all of these, you know, little phrases of lines that he already kind of 
mentioned throughout the first two verses. Yeah. And it's just kind of like kind of jumbled together and just like this kind of like uh, very loose, uh, you know, wordplay and kind of like, you know, uh, what do they call that? That's like a train of thought kind of thing. Right. Um, sounds to me like uh, like it just basically the lyrics basically summed up, I think, is like an infinite loop of like chaos and dread. Yeah. Does that sound like right to you? That does that does sound right. Mm-hmm. But that was another thing like I that was another thing that I really found inspirational <clears throat> about X was um I think the first time one of the first times I had seen them um I went up to their their bass player at the time this guy named Luke and I was like oh my god you guys were amazing you blew my mind and he was really cool just like so thankful and like awesome you know it's 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 great that you know you're here and whatnot and then you know we got to play with the x a couple of times and they're just like so human and Mm -hmm. they they're awesome with like interacting with because they you know i'm they have a lot of people that are you know fanatically in love with that band and they're just so real like just real people who are like oh thank you that's great love it you know come back to our next show or whatever so (laughs) um yeah so that that was you know that that, like just seeing the human element of them um was really was really kind of inspirational to me yeah that's uh that's uh, always you know nice to know that they're that you know fame or or stature or whatever it is that like that doesn't go to the people's heads that have been doing this. I mean, they've been doing this a long time. So, I mean, yeah. And, but that's the thing too. It's just like, so they've never, you know, you looking at, at Blondie back when you were a kid and then like, you know, seeing that suit, that rock and roll person on TV and being like, Oh my God, I want to do that. You know, as you got older and you got into more like progressive music, more, you know, experimental music. And then you find a band like the X who have never been a mainstream band, never really, kind of experience any like major success i mean like they're they're definitely like doing well for themselves i'm sure but that's just the thing is it's like they've managed to earn themselves a living doing what they love and being true to themselves and doing exactly what they want without compromise right and it's that's an admirable quality as well for a band it's like you don't have to be a superstar or sell out or be fucking you know chumbawamba now in order to 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 be able to live off of doing what you love like yeah. and, th- and this I'm, band seems to be an example of that definitely i learned a lot from that i really learned mm. a lot and you know i you know at, at 46 years old i'm never going to stop playing music i have no desire to ever play in a pop band or you know be in a wedding cover band because that would that would be worse than like working you know like the most awful job ever mm. But it's it's ins- like really inspirational to me that those guys are musical lifers. I shouldn't say guys, you know, those people. Those people, yeah. <laughs> um, and they, you know, it's like it, it it's really amazing to see people that get so much out of you know composing and performing and interacting with their audience. You know, like I mean, I think those guys are gonna play until they're you know dead <laughs> yeah, and yeah. an interesting story that i read about tom cora uh so 
Tom Cora was an American cellist. Hmm. Um, and he, he ended up like he was living in France because he married that woman. I, I cannot pronounce her last name. It's Catherine. Jeanne. 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 Yeah, because you don't pronounce these the X. It's French, it seems, right? Je, je... It is French, yeah, because he was living in France at, at, at the time of his death. He died. Jeanne? 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 J-A-U-N-I-A-U-X to the people listening. <laughs> uh, but Tom Cora, I think he passed away at like 42, maybe mm. like 44. He died yeah. of cancer. But... Um, Eight days before he died, he was he was on stage playing a concert. Oh, and wow! I was just like, man, that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Did yeah, he, he know he had cancer? He knew yeah, he had it. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't yeah. just one of those things that was just undiagnosed, and he just kind of. No, no, he had been sick for for a while. Okay. I, I think it was like three years or something. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like he, you know, I mean, music meant that much to him that, you know on his deathbed he gets up and goes and plays a concert and mm. that, you know, i mean that that should inspire anybody even if you don't like music you know yeah that's that's amazing i i, I love that yeah. so listen we should move on to the next song and uh, i don't know if you know how to pronounce it better than i do i do it's Go called ahead. beautiful there what were you gonna say oh uh that song's kind of interesting well it's very interesting actually to me um that's the second recording the ex have done of of that song it was done by a band called music um and you know uh so katrin the drummer uh also i mean she has a beautiful singing voice so they recorded that they did, a, they did a single series also in 1991, the same year that uh, Scrabbling at the Lock was released, and they did um, they did a they did a version without cello, and it's like it's it's still like you know just as beautiful. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, it, yeah, it, I, it, I so, feel like the the cello really makes this song, you know. It does, mm. uh, but this actually start like this kind of sparked a interest in you know Eastern European folk music. Uh, and I had, uh, really like one of the most memorable experiences of my life is, uh, I was probably 21, 22, and I was living in my first ever apartment and I was booking bands at this drag bar in Boston called Jacques Cabaret. Mm -hmm. And I really, I loved this band called Rhythm Activism. I saw them open or I saw them play with the Dog Faced Hermans. And Wilf Plum, who was the drummer of the Dog Faced Hermans, uh, was drumming with uh, Rhythm Activism. So they come and play this like crazy, uh, you know, 
uh, drag bar and they stayed at my house and it was also amazing. Like I'm 21 years old and I'm sitting at my kitchen table with Will Plum, who is also an incredible drummer. Guys, yeah. And, you know, we just started talking about uh, rhythm activism, did a song called Broom Dance, which is that's a traditional Hungarian uh, folk song. And so I was just talking about it and you know, so he brought up Higa uh, Denfu and Nakazelek and was like, you have to check out this band, Musikash. And they were, a, they were a current band at the time. And, mm -hmm. they, you know, they did a lot of their own compositions, but they did a lot of traditional Hungarian folk music. And uh, that really sort of changed my life. Like I got into a bunch of weird folk music, you know, mm. um, so that song, you know, that that was also a big left turn when I heard it. I was like, you know, what are what are the origins? Like where why are they doing this song? Yeah. You know, so weird for them. Um yeah. but you know, again, it was like it was very educational to me. It was it was right. it was great. So yeah, I mean, this was this this album is uh, very much a turning point for them in their their music career. Um, so let's see, "Scrabbling at the Lock" is uh, is kind of quoted as being um, this. So this album, they kind of peak at that where they're kind of experimenting with sound and 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 the genres of music. And um, "Scrabbling" is their best selling record in history so far in their in their history. I did not know that. That was actually off their website, which uh, you know you told me to look at. So, <laughs> yeah, their best-selling record. Wow. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's obviously not a, a massive seller either, but it's the best-selling one for them, and and w you know with good reason. I mean, it's definitely um, with these different notes of genres kind of blended into it. It obviously kind of like is a little bit more uh, accessible to other people rather than just like punk rock kids, you know. So um, now this song, um, loose interpretation of the lyrics is uh, "cold winds are blowing," and based on the lyrics that you sent to me, um, one of them that sticks out to me is my, "my hands and legs are under lock and key." Right. So it seems to me like this song is uh, very much like uh, kind of uh, describing a lot of um, what's the word for that? It's more of like. I don't know, an acknowledge, acknowledgement of uh, destitution? Yeah. I Is that think the right way to say that? It's just about like... Maybe. Yeah, and, and restrictions. It's like it's like being, being uh, enslaved almost. So um, this past year excluded, uh, when have you felt your most restricted? When have I felt my most... That is a really good question. Um... I had to I had to limit you from this year because this year was a giveaway. That was a giveaway. <laughs> I you know, I lucked out as um as a kid because my mom was always just like, you know, if you wanna do music, if you wanna do whatever you wanna do, you have to do what makes you happy. Hmm. In that respect, um you know, I, I, I don't like I didn't I didn't have a lot of restriction, you know, my um you know, my mom was amazing. Uh, she, you know, like never hindered me from, I mean, she wasn't excited about my uh, <laughs> intake of marijuana, when I uh -huh. was a kid, but never necessarily was like, uh, you can't do that. Um, 
That's cool. I don't know. I guess maybe like, you know, as a like as a young man, as a young gay man growing up in uh you know, in, in Massachusetts, in like right in all the cities of Boston, you know, like I that I felt very restricted because hmm. so homophobic and like so weird and um you know, like that I think probably was when I felt the most restricted. Like I felt mm. I couldn't be myself for a very long time. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think that, I think that counts as. That, that makes sense. I mean, like, I, I think that that is, that's something I did not keep into consideration. I mean, like, I mean, I know that you were, you're a gay man, but I didn't think about that. Cause I mean, that seems most probable. Uh, I actually spoke with uh, Brandon uh, Paris Sanchez recently. Oh, Brandon. Yeah, 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 everyone does. He's such a great guy. And, like, he, he's another one of those people that, like, you know, we were even spoke about it, how it's just, like, like he doesn't have any, any androgyny. Like, the, the, he's, he passes as a, uh, as a straight man, you know? Right. Um, well, so he's had very few circumstances where he has to deal with any kind of persecution or, or anything like that, you know? But, um, but obviously, you still have to deal with it because if you want to be out and, and, you know, show affection to the person that you love, then that's uh that's what you have to deal with i guess yeah i i had a lot of that throughout my life and still to this day people are like i never thought you were gay and yeah. in my own mind i feel like anytime i speak like glitter just like flies out <laughs> you know like i just like uh, you know it's weird yeah. and so i um uh, I, I was working for a law firm and i'm i like you know th this guy started as as an attorney and he was a younger guy and we became friends. He was really like, he's just a really funny guy. And I have a really like fucked up sense of humor. And mm -hmm. so, so we would always like, you know, just like joke about dumb shit, like, you know, doing crystal meth at work and just stupid stuff that like doesn't really happen. Um, so we had worked together for about, I think six months until the company Christmas party. And I showed up and I was like, hey, Josh, this is this is my husband. And he was like, oh, dude, you're fucking hilarious. And I was like, no, seriously, this is my husband. And he was like, oh, and still, if I talk to him, he's like, I feel so bad about that. And I was like, you shouldn't. That was one of the best things that ever happened. But I was like, to me, like in my own mind, I'm just like a screaming mini, you know, mm. like, like, ah, and right. So I, I do like I have gotten that a lot over the years. I mean, it might be like because I grew up in Chelsea, Massachusetts, and you had no choice other than to, you know, it, it was like, you know, get your ass kicked or, you know, you know, assimilate, assimilate. Yeah. So right. that's that's kind of what happened. Um, yeah. But hmm. so you, you were you ever a sports kid like when you're growing up? Like, did you did you kind of partake in that stuff? Uh, I love hockey and oh. hockey is the only sport I ever played. So I played hockey as a kid, played hockey in high school. Um, and well, they, they, that's like the toughest sport there is. <laughs> I love hockey. My husband yeah. actually, uh, we were, well, before the pandemic, we were, um, been ticket holders to the Bruins, which are really, you know, it's like really fun. So hmm. uh, the first, <laughs> the first game of, I guess it would be two seasons ago now. Um, 
we took a bunch of mushrooms and went to see the bee Bruins. Oh, and it man. was the weirdest experience of all time. But um, I love hockey. I love the pacing of it. Hockey, I just think, is like, it moves quicker. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of any sports, actually. I don't watch anything. Yeah, I, sports are dumb. I just don't care for them. I mean, I like to go and see them. Like, so when I was in a band, like, and did, did some touring, I was with, uh, I was a, you know, in a band with uh, sports fans, like baseball fans, particularly. And so every day off we would have, like, on tour, they would be like, is there a game going on? Is there a game going on? What stadium can we go to? So I've been to all of these stadiums. I've seen all these baseball games, like, across the country. And I'm just like... This is fine. I mean, I get to I just get to drink beer and sit here and hang out with these guys and watch watch the game. That's cool. I can do that. But like watching it on TV is a different thing, and I just don't like watching sports. When I was a kid, my dad would give my brother and I twenty bucks. We'd take the bus into Boston, go to Fenway Park. We'd get bleacher seats, hot dogs, and that actually my first live experience was at a Red Sox game, hmm. and I remember like walking up the ramp and seeing the lights and hearing the sound like just like of, of all the people the cheering and it was so exciting it was yeah. a cool thing yeah. uh, and it wasn't you know i wasn't necessarily psyched that i was going to see baseball i was like something is happening it's like this magnetic electric sort of vibe in the air and that was real. yeah that's true i mean that's true of almost any any live event that's yeah. that's like I think the the drawing factor of of doing anything with a yeah. with a, gr- a group of people, which is what's been so detrimental to us this past year. Is that none of us have experienced that again. Like you know, we're almost we almost forget what it's like, right? Yeah, weird. It's been a weird year. Fuck, sure has. Um, all right, so we should move on though. Uh, let's move on to the song King Kami. gonna buffer a little bit I want to get to the Lords that took a while <laughs> yeah. yeah you're right I mean they, they definitely have a lot of like uh, there's a lot of lead time on their songs yeah. uh, but that one in particular it's amazing because you have this really trebly tinny guitar and mm-hmm. um, the bass like so this guy uh, Luke Claussen uh, was his name he was in the band for I believe 19 years and he and Katrin like the way they played together they were such such an awesome rhythm section so the the thing I really liked about or, or I really like about this song and any of these songs is they you know they let each other sort of sort of breathe you know you'll hear like guitar and something else will come in then the vocals come in and then you know they'll also be reductive in the way that they compose their music and they give everybody space hmm. uh, that's that's really cool and this song in particular um so Catherine uh Jean-Yu, how do how did we 
how did we? Jeanet? Jeanet? I don't know. Maybe. So no. this, in a way, was like a first for the X, uh, where Yos and Catherine do, um, they do some vocal trade-offs, which mm -hmm. I think is, is really cool. And yeah. all of these, from what I know, all of the, all of the vocalizations that uh, Catherine does on this record were all improvisational. And oh. she, also she was the wife of Tom Cora. Okay. So, um, so, you know, this, like, this one's really cool because I, I do like the call and response that they sort of do here. Like in that chorus part, right? Yeah. And a lot of, like, a lot of what she does is, I don't know if, I think she's just actually, like, phonetically making, making sounds. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, thank you. I was actually going to ask you this. So you're, you're going right into it. <laughs> yeah. I think, I, I think, like, her instrument was just, you know, weird vocalization like vocal input. Right. but it's not it's not like uh dutch or or hungarian it's not some different language i don't think it's i don't think it's dutch i know well she was french that's why tom cora ended up moving to france because okay. they got married um but yeah i i don't i don't i mean sometimes it sounds like she's actually singing words but i've never been able to take it out hmm. and, I've been listening to this record for probably, you know, I mean, close to 30 years. Right. But you don't speak any languages or do you? I don't. I, I don't speak any other language. Okay. Because I mean, like, you know, like with the second song, you know, I mean, having listened to it without you giving me any, any information about it and not having been able to read, you know, the liner notes at all, I knew it was in a different language. Or I assumed it was a different language, but I didn't know what it was exactly. So this song, kind of the same thing, is like listening to it without any kind of frame of reference. I'm like, okay, she's singing in some weird language. I don't even know if it's like possibly in Arabic or God knows what, you know, because like being the international t type of band that they are and like having these influences and having some of this like kind of European kind of traditional folky feel in the music now. Um, and for me as an outsider listening to this for the first time, because I've, I've never heard this right before you, you mentioned it. Um, that's kind of like the way I was kind of taking it. I was just like, she must be singing in a different language, you know, like, um, like the, pr the previous song, uh, I can't pronounce it. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> what you said, um, I was just, I was just assuming it was more of that, you know, more of like this other language, which it turned out to be Hungarian, you know? Right. I mean, the only reason I know how to pronounce it is just because I've listened to the song probably like... <laughs> Know, thousands of times over right you're just saying it phonetically now yeah, yeah yeah um so i mean like what she does doesn't necessarily sound like the french language to me mm -hmm. and the other thing is you know the, the the x have always uh printed their lyrics in their in, like in the artwork of their records mm -hmm. there is no there is nothing of what she does printed on on the record so it leads you to believe it's interpretation and just kind yeah. of like some noise. Yeah, it's like, kind of like, uh, like what's her name the, from the B-52s and Rock Lobster, right? Oh, uh, Kate Pearson or... Yeah, uh, yeah, I can't remember which one it is, which one of the ladies it is. Um, I think it's Kate Pearson, yeah. 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 She's got that weird shrilly kind of like high shrieking <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't do it. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed myself. Um, let's move on to the next song, uh, Caruso.
gracious. Yeah. It's, Those are some uh, easy drums. Yeah, so this song actually has a lot of the um a lot of the the trappings of the x that i love and on this particular recording i love how huge the bass drums are it's like mm. but you hear that scrapey guitar which i assume might be might be terry um terry hessels who's uh he's he's the he now is the only founding member still in the band at, I think they've been around for, this is their 42nd year of existence. Oh. Uh, but there's this like really cool plucking that Tom Cora does on the cello. Though so it's sort of like, you know, it almost has a guitar feel, but uh, it's just, it's, it's such a, it's, it's such a weird marriage of instrumentation. Yeah. That, you, you know, what's really funny about this, like, so I, I thought this immediately from from my first from putting on the record at, from the very beginning. Uh, I didn't know who Tom Cora was, <clears throat> so I was uh, surprised to learn that he was a cello player, because I'm like, okay, so here's this featured cello player with this band. So obviously everything I'm hearing it must be cello, but I thought it was violin at first. Oh right, yeah. So Tom Cora, what I know about him is uh, he. He played cello, but he played electrified cello, and he would run it like through different effects pedals, um, right. like loop different parts. But mm. also would like he would use it as a percussion instrument. He would bang on it, you know. He would play on the other side of the bridge to get like really, like shrill tones. Mm. Uh, he was a really like he was just a really interesting and really progressive player. Yeah. And, that kind of you know i never really discovered jazz music until you know fairly recently in my life but he sort of started to lead me to you know um not necessarily jazz but like a lot more of like the avant-garde like you know sort of like john zorn and, mm -hmm. and, um, so i have a little bit of a funny story tom cora put out a record called gumption in limbo uh, which is solo cello, and it came out in 1991, the same year as Scrabbling at the Lock. And so when I was uh, in 1991, I think I was 17, 18, I don't know, something like that. No, I think I, 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 think I had just turned 55. Um, and <laughs> I went to, there was a, there was a record shop in uh, Harvard Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts called HMV. Do you remember that? It was like his master's voice. It's oh, a, okay. it's an English chain. It was really shitty record shop, but they had, um, they had a department and they would always, you know, if you wanted to special order import records, they would do it. So I loved this record so much, uh, that I, I had read somewhere about Tom Cora's solo record, Gumption and Limbo. And I went and ordered it. Mm -hmm. And after a month, it didn't come in after like two months didn't come in and I just forgot about it. I was like, all right, they can't get it. Over a year later, I got a call from the record store and they were like, Hey, your CD's in. And I was like, what, what? They're like, Tom Cora's gumption and limbo. And I was like, Holy shit. So of course I rushed there to get it and I listened to it. And it's, it's so interesting. Like some of the sounds that he got from just, like playing cello where it, it, it it's a really cool record if you can ever check that one out 
Hmm. Uh, really good. So okay. that, you know, that was another turning point where I was like, okay, you can take an instrument and not play it traditionally. Like the whole right. idea of an instrument is to generate sound and however you generate sound from it, you know, be it like, you know, I mean, Terry from the X, there's a video of them playing in Utrecht uh, where he's like he's just hitting the guitar with a hammer. <laughs> and, you know, that was always like, that was always like, you know, pretty influential also. Yeah. That, I don't know, you like drill your guitar or like throw it on the floor and like, you know, that that's, that's your part in the song. So, right. Uh, so yeah, but yeah, like, so I, I, I do think like a lot of times what Tom Cora does, like it does sound like violin or like viola or, um, Sometimes it even sounds like guitar when he's just like, you know, straight right. up. Two, two things. Because of the story that you just told, you just mentioned, um, I don't think that you were part of it, but that, that first Neptune record, the Studios series. Yep. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of smashed bottles in that record. There is. Yes. <laughs> so who plays a smashed bottle? Uh, <clears throat> this guy named Doug Last. Okay. Uh, he is the only former current whatever member of neptune i've only met doug once um my friend carl who came over who was the original bassist the other night uh they're they're really close mm. uh so what he did um was he had he had like a rubbermaid trash barrel yeah a cinder block in it that had a microphone <laughs> and he just smashed bottles on the cinder block and yeah. so uh on that record he's He's credited as, I think, percussion and empties. <laughs> Do you know how many bottles he smashed in that record? Because there's, it's over a number of songs. It's not just one song. No, it's it's like almost on every song. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but I can find out. All right. No, I just, just, you know, just picking your brain. Um, getting back to this song. So Caruso, uh, according to the lyrics, which there are very few, very few uh, to this long song, uh, basically seems to be about a person just kind of struggling with sleep. Right. You know, it's, it's fairly, fairly self-explanatory. So, um, tour can be an awful place to try to catch some sleep. Uh, what is one of the worst places you've had to sleep on tour? Oh, shit. I don't even know where to start. Just uh, one. I know there's, I know there's many cause you know, it's like every day there's a, there's a, you know, some, some horrible disaster. Okay. So, we Neptune played a show in a town called Kron, Slovenia. Sounds good already. I mean, Slovenia is awesome. It's like it's a beautiful country, and but we played in this building that was a former Olympic. I, I think like the Olympics in maybe like the eighties or something were in Kron, Slovenia, and so this building was it, it housed an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And then it had like another um, like sort of side room, which these people squatted and they made the side room into a bar. And the Olympic size swimming pool was made into like there was like, you know, all these like skateboard ramps and shit. And mm. kind of like you know, it was it was kind of cool. The place had no bathroom. Um, and it also the only heat was a in the in the large room where the pool was was a diesel generator 
that all of the diesel fumes were just coming into both rooms. And then they had like a wood burning stove, which was leaking smoke into the room. Nice. So at the time we were there, it might've been like, it was either very early spring or early fall. And it was really damp and really disgusting. And I remember like we slept basically on the floor of the bar in sleeping bags and you know we had to keep the fire going to you know not freeze to death or get hypothermia or whatever and i remember like trying to fall asleep and i was like i'm not gonna wake up I'm not yeah gonna you're gonna die of like carbon monoxide poisoning <laughs> die of carbon monoxide poisoning so to make matters worse we had a day off the next day and the oh. guy set up the show the guy who set up the show was awesome this guy was rad he was like oh of course you stay here and I was like, no fucking way. I was like, no way. And so by the second night, that was one of those times where I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I here? And that was bad. But I also just remembered the second most terrifying place I have ever stayed. And this was actually in, in Utrecht, 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 however you say it, in the Netherlands. And uh, we played in a squat that was an old furniture building that had a massive fire in the 80s and basically gutted the building. Hmm. So a bunch of people squatted it and, you know, they did like some DIY construction and, you know, they were like, you know, you're going to sleep up here. So we we're basically going up these hand, you know, these, these like, you know, stairs that were kind of like hobbled together. They did a nice job on the stairs. Um, but, there was plywood all over these charred beams that the beams were like not big. They were not, yeah. they didn't look sturdy and burnt through burnt through. And <laughs> we were like three stories up. And I remember, and there were other people sleeping on the floor. And I just remember like going to bed thinking to myself, I'm like, I hope I fall asleep before I plummet to my death. <laughs> that, that was i mean there's been a lot but those were those were two that come to mind yeah no those are that's pretty good i, I that's just what i was hoping for <laughs> yeah same i mean in like you know in for neptune i i would say for all of the times that we toured and played i would say the amount of times we actually rented a hotel room were under five you yeah. Know, certain places would get you a hotel room, which was which was cool. That was fine. Yeah. Uh, but it's spending we, your own money to get one. Yeah, we just like I mean we, we couldn't afford it. You know. Yeah, we we're all we're all broke. Right. Broke yeah, it's got to go. It's got to go into the gas tank. Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of the shows you play, like you know, you're gonna play like some weird place in the middle of like you know Idaho or something that like okay, we can give you a show on a Tuesday night and maybe get you some gas money but that's about it right so, yeah if you're you know if you don't have if you don't have a place to stay then you're kind of shit out of, as they say right that's right all right let's move on to the next song let's uh, listen to the flute's tale tale this is a good one Yeah. 
another one with a very long interlude. There, every song on this record is. <laughs> yeah, like I said, a lot of music, very little words. But this, so the opening of this song encapsulates pretty much everything I love about the X because mm-hmm. you, know, you have Katrin's like really interesting drumming. You know, there's like some woodblock and like bells, whatever she's playing, um, and then that you know piercing what what i what i think is probably like terry's guitar and then andy comes in with this sort of melodic line and then the bass playing it's just like everything you know it layers in but it's all so weird and Mm. it really work but it works it's got a very like uh very moderate like groove to it like it's yeah like teeters on like a like a like a funk or like a like a soul maybe you know with like a weird european folky jangle to it yeah yeah, yeah. And i do i i actually love the lyrics of this song because it's called the flute's tale mm-hmm. so the the last three lines are um the emperor he knew it and what did he do he blew it and i was like i remember i was like oh that's so good that's such yeah a- well, the the two the the two verses prior to that, the, those three lines that you just mentioned, are is basically what seems to be a very kind of cut and dry, um, like kind of a folk tale. You know, it's kind of like uh, sounds similar to like the Emperor's New Clothes or something like that, where uh, you know he says, uh, and in its reflection, he could see things: happiness, laughter, a child that sings. But he'd better watch it; he should not touch it. The happiness would fade; the laughter would die the singing child would start to cry. And then there's those three lines and with ending ending with him saying he blew it, you know, just being like, he knew it was going to happen. What does he do? He blows it anyway. It it definitely is like their take on the, like the emperor's new, new clothes, you know? Yeah. There are something similar to that. But so, so that's uh, what led me to, to wonder, um, what, what is your, your favorite fable? That, I don't know if I'd have one. Um, favorite lesson in one of those like nursery rhyme fables this is more of a novel but i've always loved and this you know i i think i said when we were talking like the first band i ever am obsessed with when i was 10 years old or 11 years old was the smiths mm-hmm. uh, the lead singer who's you know a bit of a dude uh was really inspired by uh, uh oscar wilde so hmm that led me to like start reading Oscar Wilde and one I still love the picture of Dorian Gray even though it's a novel I mean it's you know it's it's basically it's about vanity and it's I I I actually I got a lot from that book I thought that was you know I thought that was that was pretty great have you have you read it do you know it Mm -mm. no I'm not literate (laughs) I don't I don't read really there's very few novels I've ever read um the ones that I have like you know are, are very like near and dear to me right i but, mean uh there's a number of ones on my list that i've just kind of never gotten to and and now especially with like the the new business and the podcast and doing this research and shit i just i don't have time basically um there's a portrait of this guy um dorian, dorian gray. gray yeah and he you know he's a very vain person and like, you know, sort of makes this feel where um, he never ages, but the portrait does. Mm. 
So is vanity like a bad thing? Is that what it helps you realize that it's kind of a detrimental perspective? Kind of like a veiny dick, and you know he. A veiny dick? Is that what it is? A veiny dick. Yeah, that sounds brutal. That sounds harsh. That's a really good stage name. (laughs) My next band, I'm going to be called like Veiny Richard. Sure. Yeah. I'm not describing the novel well, so. That was like that's. I mean, in terms of fables, I think that that one that would be that would be my favorite. I guess. I so, wh- what did you learn from it, though? Like, what is the lesson? Not to be a veiny dick. Oh, not to be a veiny dick. Okay. You can have one. You can you have can one, sure. I mean, and, and most of us do. I mean, you not know, be one. It gets worse as you get older. I, I see. I, I see. You know. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> <laughs> You might you might consider that better. I'm not sure. It d- just depends on your perspective. All right, let's move on. For okay. now, let's move on to the to a door. To me, that is that totally showcases how much of a badass drummer Katrin uh, is. Like, I hmm. love, I love that drum line. It's so damn good. I love yeah, it. yeah, that one stuck out to me today when I was listening to it. I was just like, oh yeah, listen to that. One of my favorites. Cool. So now this this song is a little interesting because it actually seems, lyrically speaking, to be a kind of a terribly depressing song. But with like this weird jangly rock veneer, right? So you don't necessarily kind of hear how how sad it is. I uh, that, that's that's pretty <laughs> of, of a lot of their songs. Like you know, lyrically, since a lot of them were political in nature, and um, you know, I, I, I think you know, Yost often would focus on. Um, you know, like social injustice and, you know, whether it was like past and present, a lot of their lyrics are really heavy and hmm. really, you know, sad. So aside from the uh, the political uh, tinge to that this song has to it, I was going to ask you, um, what doors would you say that joining Neptune opened for you? Oh, damn. Many, many, many. Uh mm-hmm. It was, well, I mean, I, you know, first and foremost, it was, um, you know, opening a door to like lifelong friendships with people who I truly and genuinely love and will always be a part of my life. And, you know, it's just like such good people. I've learned so much from everybody involved, like whether it be like musically, um, He's going to kill me for saying this, but um, Jason, uh, you know, I like he I used to kind of call him. He was sort of like the dad of Neptune. Um, Jason's a very, very, very smart guy. And, he, you know, there would be times when I'd be like, I don't understand this. And he would like, you know, 
explained it to me. And like, you know, he turned me on to, you know, like building stuff. And it also like it opened doors where I got to meet people that I admired. Like we played with the X three times. Um, you know, we got to uh, we got to play with David Yao of the Jesus Lizard, who was like another. You know, they were they were mad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I think one of the biggest doors it opened was uh, was like you know going on all these tours, and uh, I still I I keep in contact with so many people I met at shows. Um, either whether they put on shows or we just like hit it off. Uh, so, you know, that, that really like, I think the friendship element, the people that I met, the stuff that I learned, the places that I got to travel to, uh, were like, those were huge hmm. openings for me. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess like it, it even culturally taught me a lot, um, hmm also challenged me to be a better musician um you know it's i don't know it, it's definitely my my time in neptune is definitely some of the best times of my life and always will be you know um mm. and again you know like the friendship like jason and mark are you know two of the you know i i, I hold them in the highest regard you know like if anything ever happened if i ever needed anything or if i had a question or whatever like you know those guys are always there and they're always mm. you know yeah absolutely it sounds yeah. it that's yeah. beautiful man yeah i love it all right well, let's move on um we have to get into propadada call on that see that that one is that one's awesome because that really has the the call and response between yos and catherine mm. um yeah. and again like the you know like the the just the propulsion of the music it's 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 primarily rhythmic but you have these melodic uh you know like things happening over it they're kind of like swimming over all of the all of the percussive elements hmm. uh, and these so these lyrics are pretty interesting uh it is uh a smile on your lips a song in your heart a skull in your pocket and fear was in everybody's bones hmm. a right to piss and shit in different colors yeah those last lines really messed me up i'm like what yeah what? like i don't <laughs> I, I mean, I know, I know they mean something, but um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think lyrically, this this song um, kind of plays with the idea that like the title of the song is blending two words, <clears throat> and I think the two words that they're blending lyrically, they are trying to address. Right. So it's a uh, propaganda and probably dada, as in like the the art form. So propaganda, as in, so this is propaganda, smile on your lips, song in your heart, skull in your pocket. 
right. and fear was in everybody's bones. And then that right to piss and shit in different colors is kind of like what's just turning it right there into a little bit of like obscure obscurity, right? Um, listen, we're going to move on to another song. I don't want to do, um, well, I want to do Batium. Well, that one's really cool. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's do, let's do Batium. I love that song. I love, so Tom Chorus cello playing on that is incredible. And that's another, mm. so that's a, um, that's a traditional Turkish folk song. That song is, it, it, it's so great. Uh, yeah. And you know, that's another one that like, you know, really started to pique my interest in, you know, I guess, I guess I would say world music. I mean, it's overall really, you know, in this era, they they were they were very inspired by Eastern European folk music, and then later on, um, they were really inspired by uh, Ethiopian and a lot of like African music. And mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it seems like Katrin, the drummer, has probably always been a fan of like African music, just like just because of the way she plays. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when you talk about like opening doors, the X opens so many doors for me to just like check out other kinds of music. Um, right. And I, you know, like I, I don't know the origins of this, of this Turkish song, but uh, my husband and I went to Istanbul about five years ago and it was, you know, it was like, I, I've always been really obsessed with the Middle East. So going to Istanbul, um, I actually, I just, I went to a bunch of record stores and got as many like old Turkish records as I, as I could Mm. and some really interesting, interesting stuff. And one of the best ones, uh, I, I found, um, I can't pronounce the, well, I could pronounce the name, but I'm not going to do it correctly, but it's, it's two guys and one's. I don't even know the instrument that they're holding, but it was just described as Turkish disco folk. And I was like, I don't even give a shit. I'm buying this record because yes, this is, you know, this is what I want to hear. It sounds like it will be gold. Yeah. And actually it's amazing. It's not, um, it's not very folk. It's more like Turkish disco on, instruments i guess so listen about this song um i just wanted to touch on some of the information you shared with me um as as enigmatic as i found this album to be um you sharing some of the liner notes with me was was hugely uh helpful so what i'm not going to get into the entire description that they they list on the record about this song but uh you know just touching on it it just says that um their description of, of Badium is a, is a beautiful and touching dedication to uh, Ismet Siral, who yes. uh, was the person who basically wrote this song, I guess, right? So yeah, so uh, it looks like Tom Cora was the one that wrote this dedication, and it's uh, kind of describing the uh, 
dedication to him and, and kind of like how he kind of came this short life that he had and and you know the, like his journey yeah yeah uh and the impact that that he that he and these songs that he had made uh, had on on him and and probably so many other people right. so um uh, okay. my question for you is uh do you think that you have anything in your just just say discography now that would be like maybe your your landmark have you reached one of those yet um i don't that's a really that is a really good question and a really difficult question right because um i've always struggled with the idea of um of like importance yeah uh so i don't really know how to answer that i would say like i know i keep talking about this but i would say um the like the the, the most recent neptune record we released number of millions is i listen to that and this is going to sound totally douchey and weird but i listen to that all the time i love it and yeah. if I ever want to like, you know, like, let's say, you know, a hundred years from now, if anybody ever discovers any music that I've ever made, I would love it to be that because we really like, I mean, we, we really tried very hard <laughs> to make yeah. it as unlistable <laughs> as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think that there's anything douchey about you know just kind of appreciating something that you have created and to be able to acknowledge that, like, especially because you know how much went into it. You right. know, anyone from from any other outsider's perspective, you know, you just see it as like, okay, well, here's the newest record, throw it on the pile, right? And and they may never, they're never gonna know like what kind of work went into making that record happen. I mean, I like I I feel that way about. Uh, a, a, a lot of projects um, that I was involved in. So a band I've been playing in currently lay feeling with my friend, Tom. Um, he, we, we started like just making these sort of, you know, more ambient compositions. And both of us had the thought we were like, you know, who wants to see two fucking dudes twiddle knobs? This is boring. Like, you know, so Mark from Neptune actually was, uh, he was in Providence, um, like, you know, for work. And so we were like, hey, would you come check out our, just just check out what we're doing and tell us if it sucks, you know? So mm -hmm. he was, no, it's, it's awesome, but you guys should do something visual. And, you know, so what we started doing was live scoring uh, queer and feminist films. And we, the le so the first record we did, which is called A Delphinium Blue Upon Your Grave, which is a line from a Derek Jarman film. Um, we, there's a song on there that it, it's called the shadow, it's called Shadow is the Queen of Color, which is also from a Derek Jarman book. I don't know if you're familiar with Derek Jarman, but he no. was um, an, an experimental English filmmaker. Uh, he died of AIDS in 1994, but he was just like the most 
outside thinker in terms of everything. He was an avid gardener. He was a painter. He was a set designer. He was a filmmaker. He's just one of the most inspirational people, like people in my life. And this song we we made, I I still think like I hear it and I'm like, oh shit, I can't believe we made that song. Like that mm. is really cool. Yeah. So I love that. And then uh, I was. I was in a band for a while called Golden Shores with uh, a, a friend of mine. And um, we did a record that uh, is kind of all based on uh, how religions don't intersect. And part of it was based on uh, my trip to Istanbul, where my husband and I went into this place called the Hagia Sophia, which started as a pagan temple and then you know over the course of hundreds of years it went from like a christian church to uh you know a a muslim mosque and back and forth and back and forth and then mm. it went into it, it, it there was no like religious jurisdiction it became a museum erdogan has actually now um made it back into a mosque but we were in there and during a renovation, there was um, there it was uncovered these like frescoes of like the Virgin Mary, and on either side were these like amazing like Arabic symbols, and we were in there with a tour guide, and he like this almost brought me to tears because he was like, "Do you guys think that like when the lights shut off, that like you know?" They talked to each other and they were like, how did everyone get it so wrong? Why? Hmm. Like, and I was like, holy shit. So I spent months mixing that record. And, you know, it's like, you know, I, I took like, there's actually bits that I, there's a um, elements I recorded in, uh, a, in, in a in a church in Galway, Ireland of these women praying. And then I, uh, I recorded uh, what is called the Adhan, which is the Muslim call to prayer. I think Adhan is the Turkish term for the Muslim call to prayer. Um, so I just like, I, I, I really wanted to like intersect all of these different religious elements and have it be sort of like this meditation on like, you know, the idea of religion being, you know, acceptance and love, but none of them get along and they like mm -hmm. organized religion causes like more harm and destruction than anything. So mm -hmm. I was, I was really proud of the way that came out. Um, okay. So yeah, nice. I know. I have a, I have a sub question for you. Okay. And uh, so based on what we were talking about earlier, the, the content of this story, the kind of the story of this instrumental song and what I asked you, um, what would you like people to say at your funeral about you? Oh, I've thought about this a lot. <laughs> okay, good. This is great. So I, for many years, worked at a trust in the state's law firm. And, uh, you know, so that means like we do, we write wills and trusts and like, it, it, it was kind of hard to deal with because basically you're mostly dealing with a lot of wealthy, horrible people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, seeing what different people wanted at their funerals or their memorial service was um, 
kind of eye-opening and a lot of it was really cheesy. So I asked my nephew, my nephew uh, is a musician. He played in a band called Wet. And uh, he also like, he he recently was playing with Arto Lindsay, like doing some weird, you know, Arto Lindsay? No. He was in DNA. He's like a, he's oh, like, okay. like a no wave kind of, um, you know, it, it's so funny because my nephew like so nonchalantly was like, yeah, man, I'm like, I'm with Arto Lindsay. And I was like, fuck like how did this happen um so i asked him i was like when i pass away i want you to do something for me and i want my i want my i want to be cremated and i want my ashes placed into vinyl records because there was a place that was doing that was doing it uh and then aside from that i was like i i want no religion at all so so yeah, like I, if my ideal, uh, you know, memorial service would be people hanging out, having fun, listening to music, and that's it. Okay. So having your ashes pressed into records, what record would you press with those ashes? So I thought a lot about this, and um, initially I was thinking like I wanted to pick a f- like a favorite song from every band I've ever played in. Hmm. But, so like a compilation record. Compilation record. But um, I've never been a person to release music under my own name. Like, I don't I don't love doing solo stuff. Like, I really love collaboration. And, you know, like, not every idea, idea is a good idea. So it's great when you play with other people and they're like, meh, maybe not that. But, like, let's do this and whatever. Hmm. But what I decided I was doing... Um, I actually I <laughs> I call it the uh the the Requiem record. I've been slowly making songs that I want pressed on this record. Okay. So um so, so you the put I put a lot of thought into this. <laughs> okay. Um you know the so the idea is like you know I I really in my lifetime never want to release a record under my name but I want one released under my name after I'm dead. And it's just going to be all this weird shit that I've like recorded over the years. And I, it's funny because I asked my nephew, I'm like, hey, are, are you cool doing this? And he's like, absolutely. And, uh, you know, yeah. So I think, you know, I, a couple of years ago, um, I was diagnosed with hepatitis C. And I had no idea for... Like, I guess I had it for 20 years. I had no clue that I had hepatitis C. So, you know, now that I'm like in my 40s and, you know, have a potential, like had a potential life-threatening disease, I was like, oh shit, you know, like our time here is super limited. Like in the scheme of things, like we're like just not even a blip on the radar, you know? Um, So that's kind of what really got me thinking about this and you know i mean even though i said like my dad was a was kind of a dick my dad was so anti-religion and they had this memorial service for him where he was like you know god's child and and like my dad would have fucking like he would have been so pissed off (laughs) if he heard that so that kind of got me thinking. I'm like, yeah, I want none of this. I want people to just have fun because, you know, nobody lives forever. We're here for a short period of time. 
get together, remember the fun stuff and, you know, and just learn and move on. Yeah. I, okay. That's great. I mean, I, I agree with you. That's uh, that sounds like a great time and a great way to honor somebody instead of doing the typical religious bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm like, you know, I, I feel bad saying that. Like I, I'm really not anti-religion. Like if it works, no, I, <clears throat> I mean, I think it makes sense because, it, okay. You're obviously like, you're, you're obviously a fun person. I think that you obviously care a lot about people. You don't want to bore the fuck out of somebody having them show up to a church having to get dressed up all in black and go through that whole rigmarole of, of, you know, disposing I, of a body. I want it to be a theme party. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe everyone can dress in black, but it's going to be fucking goth night and joy division and Bauhaus. And like that, I feel like would, would be, you know, that, that would, that would, that would be fitting. <laughs> and, and Dan Boucher's uh, latest uh, solo release, her debut solo release. <laughs> <laughs> in the vinyl yeah, yeah absolutely that's like a great time I spent so much time thinking about that recently and it like you know not even recently i mean it's been like four years now um and it's funny like you know my nephew who is is my oldest sister's child um he's just like he's amazing he's you know he's he's just such a free thinker hmm. uh, yeah, I asked him and he's like, I'm fine. So the other like so the other thing that I was thinking about is I want to have everybody I've either played in a band with or I've ever uh like really admire play something on the record. So even if it's one note, I'll somehow fit it in. And yeah, so that will be my first and only solo record. Whoa. Heavy man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan, um, we, we have to move on, uh, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> all right, well, here's Fire and Ice. You calculate with a bad memory. You tell lies to lies apart. You want to compare evil with evil. Deserve the war he gets. Okay. Uh, so, fire and ice. Fire and ice. The reason this song I think is interesting is um, this this song kind of m makes me uh, like I, I really loved Yos's delivery. You know, he was just like he had such a great delivery. But the the thing that's really interesting about this song is it's actually the X covering themselves. Because oh, okay. This song appeared on a record called Blueprints for a Blackout, which I think was their first double record. Um, and that that one was like when they, you know, I mean, they've always been weird and they've always been about like, you know, taking like massive turns. Um, I thought it was kind of cool that like, you know, the band was covering themselves. Yeah. And, but I mean, they bring new life to it, like with having Tom Cora, like he doesn't necessarily play like the the guitar parts. Um, he does his own thing. Uh, but, you know, this song, if you read the lyrics, this song is really heavy. And to me, what 
I think it's about is, you know, I mean, it's obviously about racism in a way. Mm. Okay. It's about war, but it seems like it's about genocide. Okay. You know, it's like, it, it's definitely, it's, it's, there's a lot to unpack lyrically in this song. Yes, uh, I think so. That is something that, like, I really took from Fire and Ice. I think it's really cool that you can revisit your older songs and, you know, like, breathe new life into them. I guess in a way. Um, right. So yeah, so I, I I found that pretty pretty interesting. Huh. Okay, cool. Yeah, this song. <clears throat> I mean, aside from from that perspective of yours, I mean, like, I find it, like you were saying, very difficult to kind of comprehend the lyrics completely i mean i think that it seems obviously overtly political uh i'm not sure exactly which you know uh like historical situations he's mentioning exactly because i'm not i'm just not big on history and, and I'm, i don't know them well enough so right. it's hard for me to kind of you know pinpoint things about the these this song and these well, words so the lyrics in this song are how do you compare the how do you compare bad with bad? Do you subtract dead Salvadorians from dead Iraqis? Do you subtract Ch uh, Chileans from poisoned Kurd? And with whom do you exchange the exterminated v Vietnamese? Right. So, so it sounds like a couple of weird, uh, like a couple of like, uh, not necessarily war, but like, you know, possibly yeah. genocidal situations genocidal it seems it, 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 and, and you know like i mean the kurds basically throughout history have just been continually fucked and they like you know now again like erdogan in in turkey basically i mean there's a there's almost another like kurdish genocide happening right now hmm. uh and you know so they like right the same year that uh the x put out scrambling at the lock they did this single uh, subscription series and one of them was with a Curtis musician and the, you know, the, the idea from what I got from that single was about this like Curtis genocide. Um, again, not really like at the time that I found this, I didn't know much about politics. I guess I didn't know much about, you know, the world. Um, and this started, this really started teaching me about that kind of stuff. So, hmm. okay. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I'll have to get into it myself now. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I mean, so the thing about the X is they are like, they're, I, I have two bands that like I always revisit and I always hear something new. And it's like the X and Autecker. And I mean, hmm different musical styles but after not listening to a certain record for like a year or two i go back and like i always hear it differently there's always something else i can pull out from it and you know whether it's like you know stuff i've learned or you know maybe like a like a melody i hadn't heard before i love the idea that music can be that sort of thing like the gift that keeps on giving if you will yeah. like it always i mean even these recorded versions are the recorded versions they they somehow like they they change to me right. like yeah I, I just i pick up different things 
Uh, and I, I think a lot of a lot of why that happens with the X is like it's so musically dense. There is so much happening in every song. Uh, mm. You know, like a lot of times I'll listen to it and I'll just like focus on the rhythms, and then I will focus on the guitars, and then you know focus on the lyrics. So uh, they, you know, I, I one thing about the X that kind of bums me out is. I feel like they should be huge. I feel like people like they, they should be so much more well-known. Mm. Uh, and I mean, maybe it's kind of cool that they're not, but I think for like what they've accomplished in their, you know, in, in their, I guess, 42 year run is mm. it's massive. It's huge, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I'm only discovering them now because of you, and I mean, I would, I'd have to say I agree. I mean, it's like from what I've heard of them so far, and I haven't listened to everything. It's, uh, yeah, it's compelling and and interesting music for sure. Yeah, they're they're great. Um, yeah. You know, so, again, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say we we gotta move on to the last song. Okay. Uh, this Suki Sukiana, I believe that's how you say it. It's so interesting. I mean, there are like, there are a couple times when, you know, even in the, in the first like 30 seconds of that song, I'm like, what is making that sound? What is, hmm. where is that coming from? Um, right. Yeah. They, they like, yeah, I, I, I can't say enough about how much this band changed my life and how much I, you know, I, I like, I love them. I hold them in such high regard. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, good reason yeah they, so now you shared with me some you know obviously the the liner notes of the record and so for this song which is an instrumental as you were saying uh it gives a little story about who suskiana is like the little background of 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 her so uh let me just kind of get through this quickly uh Sukiyana, granddaughter of muhammad was militant good looking and of great intelligence and spiritual strength next to that she was also very brave uh in medina she was a star Women admired her, and the most important men competed for her hand. She married five of them. Many Arabs and Muslims still fear her influence, although she's been dead now for 14 centuries. Yeah. <clears throat> she refused to wear a veil and recorded by law that men and women had equal rights. However, that decision was abolished 100 years later. Even nowadays, <clears throat> Arab historians are fascinated by her courage. And that is a quote from Fatima Mernisi, a historian in March 1991's issue of Emma, a German woman's monthly. Yeah. Um, that's an amazing story. It's an amazing piece of history that I had no knowledge of whatsoever. Um, so my, my final question for you is, uh, 
who is one of your female idols? Oh, shit. I have so many. I don't even know where to start. Okay, just start uh, with one, because I have another question for you after that. Okay, so um, female idols. Uh, I guess this is going to sound cheesy, but the biggest was my mom. My mother was the most amazing human. Uh, she, you know, she was very... Uh, just open, open-minded, mm -hmm. very cool. Uh, she always, you know, she always told me to like follow my heart, follow my dreams, you know, whereas my dad was like, oh, you can't do music. That's for, you know, that's for fairies and, you know, you're not going to make a living. And I'm like, I don't right. give a shit. My mom was like, if you love it, that's what you should do. Um, I took a lot from that. Uh, Katharina Bornfield, the drummer of the X, is like also, you know, one of my one of my like biggest musical, musical idols maybe say yeah heroes um but i don't know there are a ton yeah are, I, I was raised by women i was raised by all women um my dad like i said earlier this is probably the third time i'm mentioning what a dick he was <laughs> my dad left when i was 11. Uh -huh. I three older sisters and a brother and i was raised by my sisters mostly and my mom um, so, you know, I like, they were all such just like strong, independent, smart, awesome people that mm. you know, they essentially taught me not to be an asshole. And, right. you know, that's, that's like the best thing you can learn in life, I think. So it's certainly an important lesson. Um, so my follow-up question to you is, uh, and how do you feel about the female representation in the music industry today? Uh, I don't feel great about it. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's, you know, it th this is also like another thing that I feel weird saying, but another, another formative band to me that like I really loved was Unwound. And, you know, one of my favorite drummers is Sarah Lund from Unwound. She's fucking awesome and i mean i can that's another one where like i can point out so many times on different records that i've made where i blatantly ripped off sarah uh mm -hmm. it was just like you know it was awesome in the early 90s or the mid to late 90s to see like you know women in bands and not only just like you know like a vocalist but just like like just such a kick-ass drummer, like so powerful and so amazing. Um, mm. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think, I don't think there's, I don't know. I wish there were more women in rock, you know, yeah. uh, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel it's, you know, I, I feel rock and roll or like, I hate saying that, but I feel like the music industry is so, male dominated and it's mm. so, like a lot of it is like so testosterone fueled that like ugh, fucking boring like right now, but but you so you you gave a couple of examples of like like women musicians particularly drummers who are um like their style of playing the bands that they are part of are like these great like rock bands like even in a, in a heavier realm like it's it's just kind of nice to know that as few as as there may be, that 
at least they have the ability to, you know, uh, kind of r- like rub elbows with with the men, being right. able to play as hard or as intensely as any man could. Right, right. You know, um, one one really great uh, experience is uh, we didn't really get to talk about this, but uh, we Neptune got to play. Uh, the X's 25th anniversary anniversary at the Paradiso in Amsterdam. Right. And one of the bands that blew my fucking mind was Electrolane. And I don't know if you know them, but no. they, uh, they're like, you know, the way the X described them is like, you know, they're a, like a female pop band and they were, and they weren't like they were, th- that band was so Awesome. And it was great to just see like women on stage, like, you know, just so confident mm-hmm. and so amazing. And they were like, we actually ended up becoming good friends with them. Like they were so, it was just like, I mean, it shouldn't be a rarity that you see a bunch of like, you know, like female bands. Like, why is that, you know, mm. I don't know. It, yeah. It, it's really weird, but um, I don't know. There's like, you know, there's a ton of local musicians in Providence who really inspire the hell out of me. Um, female musicians that, you know, I, yeah. I think like one thing that's really great is, you know, Riot, Rhode Island, that yeah. used to be Girls Rock. Mm-hmm. That is, that's such an awesome program. Um, a good friend of mine, former bandmate, uh, he his daughter went through the girls rock in Boston and like it totally, it had such a positive impact, like impact on her life. Um, that, you know, still playing music. Great. Mm. So I don't know. Yeah, I do. Like, I kind of hate the, uh, I hate music being like, you know, the, like the old boys club, but I, I do. It's changing. It, 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 it's, it's, the, the pace is, is, is not as fast as I, I hope it would be, but it's definitely changing. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's kind of like, uh, like many of the other, like kind of inequalities that are happening in the world right now. It's just like, there are a lot more that are being brought to attention, being right. more of a focal point. And obviously, uh, those, uh, marginalized groups are like, you know, kind of making a, an effort to, you know, push themselves while this momentum is building, I guess. Kind right. of. I think it's true. Like it's reality. I, I used to have this friend, Bob, um, and, uh, basically Bob was my friend. Cause I used to buy weed off him. And <laughs> this is in the nineties. And he was really into like, you know, grunge and shit. And mm. so I would just like, I'd go over and we'd like smoke weed and we'd talk about like, you know, fucking stupid records of the time. And, um smashing pumpkins came up and he was like i won't listen to them and i was like why he's like it's a girl in a band girls shouldn't be in bands and i was like are you fucking kidding me like you're like what that's so stupid you're such an (laughs) idiot and uh i actually really liked the the first two smashing pumpkins records a lot i was like you're a fucking dick you have no like yeah and you never bought weed from him again um, yeah, is- well, we won't go that far, but yeah, you know, we had strong words. <laughs> but just like that mentality is so fucking weird. 
to me. You know, like I, I don't right. get it. You know, I've experienced a lot of that shit, like just being a gay man. I remember um, this woman I worked with was like, oh, I used to like Queen, but I found out they were gay. And I was like, well, first of all, there was one member of the band that was gay. And why does that matter? Like Freddie Mercury was fucking amazing. He was like, great, you know? Yeah. Uh, but but it's just weird that people will like, you know, like just because one member was known to be gay that like the whole band is gay and I'm not going to listen to them because they're faggots or like, I mean, it's just like, it, it's so, it's so stupid. Hmm. So I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of that shit that I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, it's really disheartening. Yeah. I yeah, know. I agree. Um, I just wanted to kind of get your, your, uh, your opinion on it considering this uh, this closing track was uh, so kind of like heavily stymed in uh, in like this uh, acknowledgement to to this influential woman who obviously has kind of gone you know unknown now after all these you know centuries right so well I mean to me, like my whole musical journey is really inspired by three very important women in my life. So the, the reason I play music is because of women. So, you know, my sister Denise bought me my first drum set when I was three, as I said. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom also just being like, she was so rad. She was always like, yeah, if you want to play drums, play drums, like do it. You can practice in the basement. You can do whatever you want. She was like, you have to do what makes you happy. And the biggest turning point in my musical life before I found the X was my brother, um, whom I love dearly, my my brother's awesome. He's like, we're kind of like the same person, except he's a lot more Republican <laughs> than, than I am. Um, uh-huh. And in like, I think 1985 or 1986, he started dating this woman, Ellen, who I'm still friends with. I love her to death. Yeah. And um, she was so cool because like she'd show up at the house and she'd have like a fucking prom dress on and like checkered, like shaved in like the side of her hair. And she was like, why are you listening to this classic rock? This stuff sucks, man. Here. She's like, I'm going to turn you on to some like really good music. So she gave me a cassette. She made one side was the dead Kennedy's uh, fresh fruit for rotting vegetables. And the other side was the Smith's meat is murder. And that really, really, really changed my life because I was Mm. like, shit, music can be, you know, so much more scary or like emotive and, yeah. you know, with the Smiths, like it, you know, as, as much as Morris is a douchebag and we've talked about this before, but like, you know, as a young gay kid growing up in a really like homophobic kind of environment, I felt like I was not alone, you know? And then like the dead Kennedys, I was like, I've never heard anything like this. So that set me on a path of like seeking out like every weird shit, like all, all, all like the, all, all the, like, like the most challenging music I could find, hmm. uh, you know, like Bauhaus, Joy Division, all that kind of stuff. Um, so Ellen had a major, major, major impact on my life. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, well, listen, hey, we've been talking a fuck long time, yeah, yeah. but it's been such a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you for introducing the X uh, to me. Of course. I appreciate it. 
So, so what what have you got on uh, prospects coming up? Uh, probably with Wrong Hole, I imagine. There's a bunch. Oh my God, there's a bunch of stuff. So um, the next thing coming out is uh, Alec Redfern's uh, actual full length with his Doom project. Okay. Which I really love, and then. Um, you know, uh, well, obviously, you know, Brent Frattini. Uh, yeah. Brent is in a band that I really love called Infrastructure Rot. And they, they did a record in quarantine because the drummer now lives in Taipei. Sean was in Boston. Brent was here. And the record they did in quarantine is the best thing they've done. It's sick. Hmm. So they did a, um, they did a, a like a, just like a digital version so i'm gonna do a cassette version and then uh i have like oh tk which is talia zedek's uh kind of noise band with her girlfriend and this guy that was in uzi i got coming up um so there's yeah there's a there's a bunch of stuff there's a bunch of stuff i'm, I'm really excited about alex's record i think it's so good i think his stuff is great so yeah yeah, yeah. for sure i mean you can't go wrong all right, Jen, hey, listen, it's been great talking to you. It's been good talking to you, buddy. Thank you All for right. the time. I really appreciate it. Yes, appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, have a good night. All right, Dan, you too. Talk. I'll see ya. Bye. Bye. Vision is a second static production. Theme song written and performed by Jeff Robinson, 123 Astronaut. 